turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We are on verse 6 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're looking at verses 6 through 15. We've been studying through this letter of 2 Corinthians and uh, we're here in chapters 8 and 9. Uh, this is the third a week where we've been talking about this issue of uh, giving that Paul has brought up for the Corinthians. And so we'll conclude that today. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, They will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now let's pray for God's blessing upon this time. Our Lord, we remember again what we've read earlier, that this word is breathed out by you, and you have given it to your church for our rebuke, for our correction, instruction, and training in righteousness, that we might be equipped in every good work. So we pray that you would equip us. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it looks like to live a life devoted to you. We pray that you would show us Christ, our Savior, and teach us about him and about your grace in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. There's a young man who found himself floating in and out of consciousness as he was sitting in a bathtub that was filled with soup stock that had become cold as he had sat there for over two hours. And he's praying as he sits in the tub for Jesus to heal him. He tries to think of all the sins that he's ever committed in his life and repent of them. And he speaks out loud that he casts away all doubts and fears 
of God's power that God could not heal him. He wants to fully believe that God can heal him as he lies there. Because he's lying there with mercury poisoning, but refuses to go to the hospital. He believes that if he were to go to a hospital or a doctor, that this would be a sign of lack of faith in God's power to heal. And so he sits there for hours and hours. Well, finally, his mom found him and dragged him to the hospital, and he was able to be treated, and he survived. But then a few months later, uh, this same young man now has a different problem. Now he has no job, and he can't pay his rent. He can't buy any groceries. And so his conclusion then is that he must have some sin hidden in his heart that he has yet to repent of. So again, he tries to think of all his sins and repent of them. He tries to rebuke Satan for uh, keeping him from having a job. And he decides that he is going to tithe more. Double up his tithing. And he says that if he gives more, then he will receive back in faith a hundred times what he has tithed. But he still doesn't have any money. After he tithes. A few months later or weeks later, he goes to the ATM and withdraws some cash. And he gets a receipt that says minus 40 in your account. He rebukes the receipts in the name of Jesus. This is lies. These are lies of Satan. I just need to believe what God has promised, he tells himself. I believe that you promised, Lord, if I tithe more, that I would reap bountifully. I would get back a hundredfold what I gave. Well, this is a true story. Uh, A young man who later became a believer understood the true gospel, but at that time, he was not a believer. Uh, he was trapped in a false teaching, a false gospel that we call the prosperity gospel or prosperity teaching. Uh, prosperity teaching says that if you just have enough faith, if you repent enough of your sins, that God promises to bless you with physical health and material wealth and financial rewards. And that if you just give and give and give more, that you are sowing a seed so that when you send $100 to that preacher on TV so that he can buy his jet, then God promises to reward you 10 or 100 fold and you will receive $1,000 in the mail if you just give 100 right now. That is the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel. In fact, God does not promise prosperity to Christians. We just read in 2 Timothy 3, he promises persecution. All who are godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus tells us that if you want to save your life, the way to do that is you're going to have to lose your life. Jesus tells us that if you want to follow him, you must deny yourself, not enrich yourself, but deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him him. This is the true gospel of true repentance and true salvation that this young man finally came to understand. And he was awakened to the lies that he was believing by this prosperity teaching. I wanted to start with that story because this is 
uh, in chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, this is one of the prosperity teacher's favorite passages, especially verse 6, that if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. And if you sow bountifully, give lots of money, God promises that you will reap bountifully. And they would interpret that falsely to mean that you will reap lots of financial gain the more and more you give. So I start that way to make it very clear from the beginning that this is not what I'm trying to say, not what the Bible teaches, and that's not how we interpret this passage. We're going to see over and over again, Paul actually says, if you just look at the text, he actually says that the reaping that you will get, the reward you will get, is God's provision. God's basic provision of your needs. And that if he gives you even more, that the purpose of it is for you to give more. Not to spend money on your suits and your Ferraris and your house. But we're going to see multiple times in verse 8. It's so that you may abound in good works. Verse 11, it's so that you may be generous. That is the purpose of God giving us money. Not to get rich, but to be generous. So let's look at this passage and see what it says about the call to be generous. We can look at this passage in five parts. And uh, part one is verse six, where we are told to give generously. Let's start looking at the text. Verse six, Paul starts by saying, The point is this. Always a nice way to start telling us exactly what the point of his passage is. Here is the point. Paul is going to tell us here is the point of all of chapters 8 and 9. As he has brought up the offering that he wants the Corinthians to give. He's told us about the example of the Macedonians and their sacrifice. He's told us that he's sending Titus and two other brothers to handle the money in a responsible and faithful way. What's the point of telling us all that? The point is he wants them, he wants us to do this. The point is this, verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. God uh, wants us to give generously. Paul wants the Corinthians to sow bountifully for this collection and this offering that's being taken for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul gives us this principle of reaping and sowing. We see that multiple places in the Bible. You reap what you sow. It's a general principle of life. Actions have consequences. And here he's applying it to money that when you give, that it will have consequences. You will reap bountifully. The image of sowing and reaping comes from a farmer. So picture a farmer who is having a hard time. He doesn't have a lot of money. And so he has all these acres of field that he could plant, but because he doesn't have a lot of money, he only buys one sack of seeds of wheat 
for the year. And so he goes and he sows his one sack of wheat. And then months later, harvest time comes. And all he has to reap is that sack of seeds that are now wheat bushes, wheat plants. That's all he has to reap. And so he harvests the wheat. He goes off and he sells it. He brings the money to his wife. He's got a small pile of bills and he says, here, dear, here is what we have for the rest of the year. And she says, this is it? He says, yeah. Why so little this year? He says, well, I only sowed a few seeds. That's why I only had a little bit of wheat to sell. And then the next year, with that little bit of money that is still left, he has even less to buy seeds. And so he goes and he buys half of a sack of seeds on the second year. Well, then he plants those seeds. And harvest time, that's all he has to harvest. And so as year after year goes by, he has less and less of a harvest because he can afford less and less of these seeds. This is the principle of reaping what you sow. That not only do you reap what you sow one year, but then that builds and builds or it shrinks and shrinks. It's the principle of compound interest. When you invest money, the more you invest, the more interest you're going to get. And the more money you're going to get from that interest. And then that bigger pile of money is going to get even more interest money. So the more you invest, the more you're going to make. That's the principle. And so Paul here is applying that to giving to the cause of Christ, to the church. That giving is like sowing. We give, we sow. And if we give sparingly, we will reap sparingly. If we give bountifully, we will reap bountifully. He's telling us that giving to the cause of Christ is not a loss. It's an investment. You're not losing like You can take your $1,000 and you could invest it and get 10% for that year. That's $100 you could get for that year. And then that uh, $1,000 plus $100 will then make more interest the next year. Or you could take your $1,000 and you could buy patio furniture. And your patio furniture will decrease in value. It sits there and rots So you have a choice of how to use your money. Do you want to invest it or do you want to lose it on something that's losing value? That's what Paul is saying. You can spend your money on all kinds of things for yourself that can ultimately be in the loss column. Or you can invest. But he's not talking about the stock market here. He's saying invest by giving to the cause of Christ. Invest by giving to the kingdom. So remember a few weeks ago I brought up the issue of tithing and you know we say that, that technically tithing is old covenant that you know 10% is not like given in the New Testament as required for every believer. 
But sometimes people would take what I say and they would say, well, if tithing is not required, then I can get away with my 4% instead of my 10%. Well, you're missing the whole point. Do you want to reap more sparingly? You want to reap more sparingly than people in Israel who were forced to give 10% and so they, they reaped very little? Do you want to reap bountifully? Well, then why would you set your standard at the, the minimum of 10%? What, wouldn't you, as a Christian who now knows the grace of Christ, want to sow even more bountifully than they did back then? So that you can invest, so that you can reap an even greater reward? That's what Paul's saying. Well, let me be clear here. I said it at the beginning, but I'm going to say it over and over again. How do you reap bountifully? It's not a promise of you getting rich. You're not investing for yourself. The investment that you are putting into the cause of Christ is not for you to reap bountifully to get more money back. No, what will reap bountifully is the cause of the kingdom. The kingdom will grow. The gospel will be preached to all nations. The more that you give generously, the more people can be sent out to all nations to preach Christ. And God uses the means to accomplish his purposes. He uses people who need to go and he uses people who need to give generously to send. Churches. They need money. You can't exist in this world. You can't exist in the country without money. You want to give generously? We give to churches of Christ. We give to plant more and more churches. The more churches are planted, the more the gospel is preached. That's how we reap. We also reap with our own spiritual blessings. Jesus says, That when you give, you are laying up treasures in heaven. That means that, yes, you will have some personal satisfaction and reward from your generosity, but it's not a financial reward. It's a treasure in heaven. It's the blessing of knowing that you are glorifying God with your life, that you are serving him, that you're serving his kingdom, and you will be blessed and rewarded in heaven, spiritually speaking. So, if you want to reap these bountiful spiritual blessings, and you want to reap blessings for the kingdom of God, sow bountifully, give generously. The second thing Paul says is that we should give cheerfully. Look at verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul so far has been writing to the church as a whole, asking the church as a whole to give an offering. And here he now talks to each person in the church. Each one of you, he says. Not just as a church, you need to have, a, have an offering, but each one of you 
You need to decide how much you are going to give. You need to give as you decide in your heart. You you can't do this with the IRS. You can't tell the IRS when they send you their audit that you decided to give them what you decide in your own heart they need or is appropriate. But the church is not taxing people. We're not the IRS. We don't force certain amounts of money out of people. No. In the church, you give as you decide. Our offerings are free will offerings. They are of our own choice. They are uh, given under the uh, accountability of God. We, we give not to get benefits from the church, not to get power or to uh, earn certain things. It's not, it's not a transaction. You're not buying stuff from the church. You're deciding in your own heart that you're going to give. But don't take this to mean this is my money. I do what I want with my money. I give however much I want because it's my money. You do have to decide on your own and as a family how much to give. But you need to decide knowing that you will give an account to God. You need to decide living in the fear of the Lord. You have to give an account to God for how much you give. Nobody here is going to force you to give a certain amount. Nobody here is going to check your pay stubs to see what your gross income is. Nobody here is going to check your grocery receipts to see if you're paying too much for this kind of cereal and you should be buying a cheaper cereal so you can give more. No, we're not doing that. You decide. But you decide before God. And then he says, we are to give not reluctantly. Not reluctantly, not as someone who doesn't really feel like doing it, someone who doesn't want to give. Not under compulsion. Compulsion would be that you're feeling pressured to give or you're feeling forced to give. That's not the way you should give. But here again, many people will twist this verse and they'll say, well, if I feel pressure, if I feel reluctance, if I don't feel very cheerful, I'm just not going to give. You might fold your arms and say, Drew's been preaching sermons on giving for three weeks and so I'm not going to give for two more months because I've been feeling really guilty these last three weeks. And that would be giving under compulsion. I'm only giving because Drew is pressuring me in his sermons to give. So I'll not give for two months. And once the guilt goes away and I feel better about myself, then I'll give. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. It doesn't say God loves the cheerful penny pincher, the cheerful miser. No, the cheerful giver. God wants us to give. 
But he does want us to give cheerfully, not reluctantly, and not under compulsion. So what's the problem if you feel reluctance? What's the problem if you feel compulsion? What's the problem if you don't feel cheerful? The problem is you need to be cheerful. And you need to give and you need to keep giving. But if you're doing it reluctantly, you need to fix that reluctance. Give cheerfully. You should be cheerful to give. If you're not cheerful about giving, then there's something wrong. Don't you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who for your sake became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich? Doesn't that make you cheerful to give? Don't you know that those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully? That should make you cheerful to give. Don't you know, as we're going to see later, God's inexpressible gift to you? That should make you cheerful to give. God loves the cheerful giver. God loves the cheerful giver. Not the cheerful penny pincher. So, we are called to give cheerfully. So, maybe the question that you need to think for yourself is, what is it that prevents you from giving cheerfully? There are lots of reasons that people want to hold on to their money. For some people, maybe most people in, in this society, they, they want money because it makes life easier. It's convenient to be able to pay for things, to be able to buy whatever you need. If there's a problem, you just pay to fix it. It's just easy. For some people, it's a status symbol of wanting to look a certain way, having certain things, certain cars, certain house, because it makes you appear a certain way to other people. Some people, they like to keep their money, but they never spend it. They just like to see the money grow in the bank account. They love looking at the numbers, and they love the sense of more peace and more security that comes when they think, okay, well, if something happens, I have that much in savings. I have this much to retire. I'm going to be okay. And so they're not saving all their money to uh, lavishly spend it all. They're saving it all because it brings them security. Some people like to have a lot of money because it's a prideful thing where they like to feel that they are better than other people. Maybe it's being better than your parents. You weren't raised with a lot of money and you want to show people that you can do better. Or maybe it's a pride of not wanting other people to uh, help you, not, not wanting to have to ask for things. And so there's a self-sufficient pride that drives you to always make sure that you have plenty of money. So maybe one of these things keeps you from giving cheerfully. And you need to address those things. You need to think about them and work on them. Because God's call to all of us is to give and give 
cheerfully. So we give generously and cheerfully. Next, we see in this passage that God gives generously. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God is able to make all grace abound. There is nothing lacking in God. God is completely sovereign. He works his providence over everything. So he is able to provide for us. He says he's able to make all grace abound. And here it seems he's mainly talking about money. uh, Providing for us financially. Because he says it's so that you will have sufficiency in all things. So God's power is at work in your life to make sure that you are always provided for. That is God's providence for you. That is God's grace at work in your life. We can even call this what we call common grace. Because God provides even for unbelievers. He provides even for animals and plants. Psalm 145 says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Animals have food and plants grow because God is upholding every cell and every molecule to get this food to them and to get it to us. God makes all grace abound. But, even though he's talking about food, I think we can also apply this verse to everything. Because you see that word all there five times. He makes all grace abound to have all sufficiency in all things at all times. So you may abound in every all good works. God's grace is always sufficient for whatever it is that you need. Whatever difficulties you are going through, whatever trials, losses, sicknesses, loneliness, causes of anxiety and fear and depression, God is able by his providence, he is working to make his grace reach you in every situation at all times. He provides so that, he says, we may abound in every good work. So again, we see here, financially, why does God make finances abound to you? Why do you reap financially? It's so that you may abound in good works. Then he quotes a psalm in verse 9. We read that psalm 112 earlier. And he's quoting verse 9 of that psalm, which talks about a righteous man. Now this righteous man distributes freely and he gives to the poor and his righteousness endures forever. And uh, I... I understand uh, this verse, this psalm, as saying, when it talks about his righteousness, that his righteousness is his good deeds, his generosity. 
And if you remember back in the psalm, it says his heart is not afraid of bad news. His heart is not afraid of bad news. So here's a man who gives, and yet then something hard comes along. Maybe he, he fa- faces a need. He's not afraid because he knows God always provides for him. And then when God provides for him and he has abundance, he then continues to give. He distributes freely. And so his righteousness endures forever. It goes on and on and on and on. Because every time he gives, he finds God providing for him. Forever and ever and ever. It seems to be that's why Paul is quoting this psalm. He's making the same point as verse 8 is making. If you are a man who abounds in good works, you distribute freely, God will give you all sufficiency in all things at all times. And then he makes the same point again in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God provides. God provides the seed. God provides the bread. That loaf of bread that's on your table came from flour, which came from wheat, which came from a seed. Who made the seed? God made the seed. God made the seed. God sovereignly ordained everything so that that bread truck would come to the store and you would have money to buy bread from the store and that bread would sit on your table. God provides for you. You might say the same thing about money. Why does God, or how does, how does money come to us? It's because God provides the money. In our day, money is, quite honestly, it's a bunch of numbers on a screen. It's not really based on anything, it's just numbers. For Paul, money was silver. Silver is glorified pieces of dirt. Somebody was digging in dirt one day and they saw something shiny and they said, wow, I want more of that. Let's have that. And so everybody decided that this piece of dirt, this rock in the ground was worth something. It's money. It's just dirt. God ordained that that dirt would be valuable for something and that then you would have these little coins of rocks so that you could have bread on your table. Why do you have money? Not because you just worked for it, but because God provides it. God's providence is over every little thing in our lives. And so we can thank God for providing the seed, the bread, the coins, the numbers in the bank account. God provides it. It's not yours. And it is so that he can increase, so that you can give, and then he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. So again, because this is God's providence, God can multiply this for you, but not for you to get rich, but for you to be more righteous. For you to give and give and give more. Maybe you are hesitant to give because you wonder if God actually provides. 
Paul is saying here. Trust God. Believe that God really will provide. So we should give generously because God gives generously to us. And number four, we see that God is glorified by our giving in verses 11 to 14. In verse 11, he says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So, again, why are you enriched? To be generous. You receive money, leading to you being generous, which leads to then others giving thanks to God. He basically repeats the same thing in verse 12. It overflows in thanksgiving to God. Maybe you've experienced times when God provided for you. Maybe you've experienced you need this amount of money. And somehow, without you telling anybody, without anybody knowing it, a check shows up in the mail with that exact amount of money. What do you do? You give thanks to God. Maybe you know the stories about a guy like Richard, uh, no, not Richard, uh, George Mueller. Uh, George Mueller had the orphanages in the 1800s, and he had stories where their orphanage would run out of food, but they would still all get together for breakfast time, and there was no food on the table, so they would just pray. And he prayed for God to provide, and as soon as he was done praying, somebody shows up at the door with food for everything they needed. And so what do they do? They give thanks to God. Now, sometimes we're the receivers, but also for that thanksgiving to God to happen, somebody had to be the giver. Somebody somehow maybe sent that check in the mail. Somebody showed up at the orphanage with that food. And sometimes the somebody is called to be us. We are those who are generous. And as we are generous, those who receive the generosity give thanks to God. It glorifies God when you are generous. Paul goes on to say that it glorifies God when it flows from our confession in verses 13 and 14. He says about the others, the people in Jerusalem, by their approval of this service... They will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. They glorify God because they see your submission flowing from your confession. So our generosity flows from the fact that we confess the gospel. The gospel is that we believe in eternity. We believe that heaven is a real place and that people will either go to heaven or hell. But when we are not generous, we're, we're not 
consistent with our confession. We're saying, yes, I believe heaven's important, but I really want to spend all my money with things on earth. I want to enjoy things on earth for myself, even though I'm saying that people are going to hell and they need the gospel. So if we, if we really believe and confess the gospel that Christ is the only way to be saved and that people are going to go to hell without the gospel, then shouldn't uh, our money back up what we believe? And so part of how we use our money is for the cause of the kingdom of God. And our confession of the gospel is that we love others. And so shouldn't we use our money to bless others with our money and he also says it's submission jesus is lord is what we say but he's not lord over my bank account lord i want to follow you i want to give you everything but i really want the newest device but I, but I really want to keep this part of my life separate. But Lord, you can have everything. No, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of everything. He's Lord of all that we have. We submit to him as Lord. Well, then Paul ends by saying that not only God is glorified, but by telling us about the gift that God has given. Verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I don't know about you, but I get a lot of letters and emails of people asking for money, ministries asking for your support. And um, a lot of times they they might end by saying something like, thank you for your generous gift which is like a way of saying, you better give. Because I'm thanking you in advance for the gift that I'm saying that you're going to give. And isn't it interesting that Paul finishes this part of the letter and he doesn't say, thanks to God for your gift. He doesn't talk about their gift. He says, thank God for his gift. He wants to draw our attention to God. And as he closes out this part about giving, he wants us to give with a vision of who God is. As he mentioned back in chapter 8, the grace of Christ, he mentions again the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That should be what we leave with. You shouldn't leave three weeks of sermons with more and more guilt about how you need to give more. But I hope you leave with thanksgiving to God for his gift. It's a gift that Paul says is inexpressible. He makes up a word that doesn't exist, apparently. Uh, the word inexpressible in, in Greek with Paul's writing. Uh, so we might say something like, it's an unsayable gift. It's not a word. It's just a word he's trying to make up to express the inexpressible. Thanks be to God for his unsayable 
gift. And this is the gift of the Son of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God didn't have to give us a gift. That's why it's a gift. We are rebels against him. We deserve nothing but his wrath. God would have been fully right to just leave all of us there, dead in our sins, languishing, weak, and helpless. And yet God sent his son. God gave his son. And God the Son came into the world and assumed a human nature and was weak and sick and took on death and was treated as a curse and bore the wrath of God. And then God raised him from the dead to show that our sins had been dealt with. This is the great mystery that was hidden for ages is now revealed in Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible says the angels longed to look into. How could God give such an inexpressible gift? And yet it has been given to us. It is given to the people of God who receive Christ by faith. It's a gift that you could have never afforded. Something that you could have never done to earn If you were righteous, what would you give to God? God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He doesn't need your good works. Nothing that you could do would ever give anything to God. But God gave us this gift. And so we should receive the gift by faith. And we who have it, we should thank God. For his inexpressible gift. This gift makes us generous as God has been generous to us. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that no words that we could say and no offerings that we could bring and works that we could do would ever be able to express thankfulness for what you have done. Help us to be more and more thankful, to not take for granted your gift. Help us to be thankful for your constant grace, abounding to supply all of our needs. And we pray that you would help us to reflect you in our generosity. We pray, Lord, that we would give and know your provision. And know your spiritual blessings upon us in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.